Good morning, everybody. Very good to see you today. I just want to reiterate uh, what Rick alluded to. There will be no services here next weekend, so please don't come here next weekend. Come down to Black Lake. We'd love to have you join us there. There's room to have you all join us there. But again, no services here next weekend. You'll be disappointed if you show up and the doors are locked and you're alone here. So uh, don't do that, please. The title of my message today is Caution, Danger Ahead. And that title, that theme that we're going to see today in 2 Peter 2, reminds me of this sign. You may have seen a sign like this. Did you know that the West Coast, Washington, Oregon, and California, our coastlines on the West Coast, have many signs similar to this one? Sneaker wave warning signs, tsunami warning signs are very common. And one of the reasons that I'm sort of tuned into that is that we have some family friends who sadly lost a daughter to a sneaker wave in 1994 on the Oregon coast. Her name was Crystal. She was just seven years old at the time. They were vacationing in Newport, Oregon. They had three girls at that point, and they were all playing on the beach near a, near a log, and uh, a sneaker wave caught them unaware, and that log killed the seven-year-old Crystal in that freak accident. Since then, I've really noticed, and I think many more of these kind of signs have been posted in the, the last 20 years or so. But uh, they not only kill people, they, they injure people, they cause property damage. Couldn't find any stats for the state of Washington, but same danger exists right here in our own state. And that's sort of the idea of what we're reading here in Second Peter today. It's a strong warning about a very serious danger. Our sermon series on 2 Peter is called Unshakable because God wants us to have unshakable faith. And Peter addresses the subject of false teachers because he understands one of the gravest dangers to a strong faith is false teaching. So what he's saying here is don't be deceived. Don't be duped. There's a bunch of dangerous fakes running around and you need to be on guard against them. So if you haven't already, please take out a Bible and join me in 2 Peter chapter 2. There should be a Bible right in front of you on the rack below the chair in front of you. If you're taking a chair Bible out, it's page 1019, but we're in 2 Peter chapter 2. It's a passage that has a very serious tone to it, as we'll see in just a minute as we begin reading. First, let's stop and pray together and ask God's Spirit to teach us. All right, Father, we thank you that you are our Father, you are our Creator, you're the one who gives life. You're the one who sent the Lord Jesus as Savior. And uh, Jesus, we acknowledge that you are the way, the truth, and the life, just as you claimed. And since you came as the truth, it only makes sense that there would be counterfeits. There would be people coming along who teach things that aren't true, who deceive and mislead and who are inspired by the enemy of our faith. And so, Father, we ask that you'd... Uh, Give us understanding of your word today as we look into this passage that we clearly see the danger, respond to it, and apply personally these truths. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. So this is a very straightforward passage that we're looking at today, one of the strongest of all warnings in the entire New Testament on this subject, and it begins by helping us understand the character of the danger. 
the character of the danger. There are false teachers out there who are teaching deadly ideas, and Peter's saying, be very cautious who you listen to and what you believe. So the idea is caution. There's danger ahead. Understand, first of all, the character of these false teachers. It's a theme that continues from last week, so special thanks to Carl DeArmond for the great job teaching the first half of 2 Peter 2 and reminding us of the warning signs. In effect, what Peter is doing is he's putting up four warning signs for us to help us understand the character of these people, these false teachers, so we can recognize them and be ready for them. And Paul took, or, uh, Carl took us through the first half of this chapter where Peter's painted this very disturbing picture. He continues with that same theme. He's not done yet, and so he adds a number of other attributes in the second half of the chapter. And the first one is this. False teachers are brash and arrogant. They are brash and arrogant. So here's how Peter goes on to describe them, beginning in the middle of verse 10. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. So we get a picture here, painted for us by Peter, of these people who are cocky and defiant and out of control and will say and do anything in order to feed their own appetites. False teachers are not true followers of Christ, as we saw last week. And as such, Peter says, we can expect them to receive God's wrath and judgment when Christ returns. Now, what I just read for you, these three verses... Peter uses the word blaspheme, or form of it, three times to describe them. And what it does is it points to the utter disregard they have for things that are sacred sacred, and should be respected. These men just arrogantly preach on spiritual matters, but they don't humbly submit to God's word themselves. They don't humbly fear the one they're preaching about. Now, there's a debate about exactly what these men were doing that, that Peter's referring to here. And the debate is around the word glorious ones at the end of verse 10. See it there? The glorious ones, they blaspheme them. Okay, and the New American Standard Version gives us an interpretive translation. It translates it the angelic majesties. I think that's a good translation. But there's various interpretations. Some interpret the glorious ones to refer to church leaders. John Piper is another uh, interpretation. He takes it to refer to the glories of Christ and of God, especially with regard to Christ's second coming. But most scholars interpret that word, which is read here, glorious ones, to refer to fallen angels. And verse 11 then is saying that the holy angels don't even dare pronounce judgment against Satan and fallen angels, but these foolish, these brash false teachers do. A likely parallel passage is John 9, or excuse me, Jude 9, which I want to read for you. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Same kind of context, I believe. 
Jude is likely referring to an event that is also mentioned in the Apocrypha, in ancient Jewish Apocryphal writings called the Assumption of Moses. And in that writing, it goes on to explain that the devil argued with Michael, the archangel, about Moses' right to have an honorable burial because uh, the devil said he didn't deserve that because he murdered the Egyptian. And rather than rebuking the devil directly, Michael appealed to the Lord instead and asked God to rebuke him. The devil fled, and he was able to bury the body of Moses. So that's an apocryphal writing. We don't know if that's true or not, but uh, it helps understand. That was probably written to help explain Jude chapter or Jude verse nine. And the point is, even the archangel Michael didn't dare rebuke Satan. But these daring and arrogant and boastful false teachers, thinking they have more power than Satan and demons, have no qualms about rebuking them. Now, I don't watch much so-called Christian television, but I've seen enough to know that some of the counterfeits on television boldly proclaim that they're going to stomp on the devil, they're going to bind all the demons, and the audience cheers and applauds such brash and arrogant language. Only problem is I don't think people who talk like that have any clue about the power of these spiritual forces of darkness that they're dealing with, that they're speaking about. And Paul says, or excuse me, Peter says here that that is a characteristic of false teachers. They typically exhibit arrogance and brash defiance against things they don't understand. Let me give you another example. It's called the New Apostolic Reformation. And it's, uh, I don't believe that everybody, in, in obviously, that everybody involved in it are unsaved, like the false teachers that Peter is talking about here, but it's a very dangerous movement today that I want you to be aware of. In fact, someone asked me this week, well, why did you pick Second Peter as your summer uh, book to preach through? And I said, well, one of the reasons is because of so much false teaching today. And this is one of the reasons or one of the things that's really been heavy on my heart, the new apostolic reformation which is a unique brand of hyper-Pentecostalism made up of hundreds of churches and organizations worldwide, uh, led by people who claim to be apostles and claim to be prophets who have a unique theology. And I bring them up here because the leaders of this movement claim to have great authority. They claim to be uh, giving ongoing revelation that even supersedes the Bible that we hold in our hands. And to me, that's the height of arrogance and foolishness. Uh, There are influential new apostolic reformation churches in the United States that include such churches as Bethel Church in Redding, California, pastored by Bill Johnson, and Morning Star Fellowship Church in Charlotte, pastored by Rick Joyner. And these kind of churches are actually in probably every major city in America. The official birth of the New Apostolic Reformation, some say, dates back to 1996 at Fuller Seminary, uh, led under the leadership of Professor C. Peter Wagner. And we could go on and on. I don't want to bore you with all that. But what I do want you to understand is that those in this movement and these so-called prophets and apostles claim that God's desire for his church today is for them to exhibit all this miraculous power and signs and miracles in order to bring Christ back to earth, that they have to do these things and win, win dominion over the earth so Christ can come. 
Other names for this movement are dominionism, dominion theology, and kingdom now theology. You might be familiar with some of them. Enough of that, all right? My point is this. False teachers are usually arrogant and brash. Beware of them. Be cautious. Next, Peter says that they are lustful and greedy. False teachers usually are lustful and greedy. And he further describes them with these words in verses 13 and 14. They counted pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. You know, most people who sin do so at night when their evil deeds can sort of be hidden by the darkness. But these evil teachers, Peter describes, sort of threw off all restraint and had stopped even trying to hide their sin. And he exposes their lust by picturing them here in verse 14 as having eyes full of adultery. Very picturesque language. The idea here is that these false teachers looked at every woman as a candidate potentially to go to bed with. And they preyed on unstable people, newer professing Christians who were emotionally and spiritually shaky. Not only were these false teachers living to fulfill their lusts, they were also driven by their greed. And he says in verse 14 that they have hearts trained in greed. Very interesting language as well that we get our word gymnasium from the Greek word for trained here. And the idea is that these guys have worked out to get their hearts in shape to be more and more greedy. They, they take the normal greed we all wrestle with and they pump it up through their frequent exercise of it. And then he says they're accursed children, which is a Hebrew way of saying they're under God's curse and bound for hell. Next, while talking about the lust and the greed of these false teachers, Peter brings up the illustration of Balaam, beginning in verse 15. And Balaam, of course, is in the Old Testament hall of shame. His story is mentioned in Numbers, verses 22 to 24. You can read that later, Numbers 22 to 24. But Balaam is sort of a strange cat. He was hired by King Balak of Moab to, to uh, curse God's people, you might remember. The only guy in the Bible who's famous for having a donkey rebuke him. Remember his story? All right, so let me read it for you. Verse 15 and 16 says, Forsaking the right way, talking about false teachers, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So yes, that really happened. And Peter uses it here to describe these false teachers in his day. And he says that his, Balaam's dumb or speechless donkey spoke to him and rebuked his madness, stopped him in his tracks. So it's a story about a dumb donkey and a dumb prophet. As someone said, you have dumb and dumber here. And Balaam is an Old Testament example that fits perfectly as a description of these quintessential false prophets. They use their giftedness purely to line their own pockets. Balaam knew that it was wrong to go out and curse God's people, but he went anyway because the pay was good 
and because the opportunity to make a name for himself was even better. And when God wouldn't let him curse the Israelites, as Balaam was hired to do by King Balak, Balaam instead advised Moab's king to get the Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men. And unfortunately, that worked. In a similar way, the false teachers in Peter's day were leading people astray through their persuasive teaching for their own financial gain and lusts. And false teachers today are no different. They may appear to be in it for the ministry, but it doesn't take long to realize that they're really in it for the money. Beware of them. Peter then summarizes them with a third warning sign. He says, they are waterless springs and clouds without rain. Notice that in verse 17. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. How disappointing. You're dying of thirst and you come upon a spring and it's dry. There's no water. Or you're dying of thirst and you find a water fountain and you push the button and it doesn't work. How disappointing can it be? And so Peter uses these two vivid word pictures to describe false teachers. In the same way, false teachers promise much but cannot deliver. You know that every human being has this inborn thirst for God. Okay, We thirst for spiritual reality. We thirst to know our creator, the one who made us. We all do. And false teachers take advantage of this. And they make promises, but they're wells without water and clouds that don't drop any rain. They make great promises, but they can't fulfill them. So warning signs. These men are brash and arrogant. They are lustful and greedy. They are springs without water and clouds without rain. And warning sign number four that Peter gives us is this. He says, one of the allures of false teachers is the great promises they make. So number four, they distort the true freedom of the gospel. And what we're going to read next is an example from Peter of just one of their empty promises. Although they promise great freedom, their teaching and their lifestyle instead actually drags people into great slavery. Let's pick it up at verse 18. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. See, one way false teachers entice people to follow them is to promise great things to them. Come with me, you can keep doing whatever you want. If you follow Christ and my teaching, my interpretation of the scriptures, you don't have to give up anything. In fact, you can, you can be wealthy, you can be prosperous, you can be healthy. And they promise great freedom, but what they deliver is great bondage. So please don't misunderstand. I am a preacher of grace. I am so thankful for God's grace, as we sang about just a few minutes ago. And I believe that Christ has set us free from the law and has delivered us from man-made legalism. But the grace and the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ was never meant to become license for sin or lust or greed. 
Instead, as Paul wrote in Romans 6, listen to what he said. He said, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? These false teachers, he writes about, were ripping the doctrine of grace from its larger context of truth and distorting Christianity into a monstrosity. And that's just typical of the freedom that false teachers offer people. Most of the world today is looking for some kind of spiritual experience or betterment in their life. But they want it without the so-called narrowness of the gospel. Have you seen that? They, they want to feel better about themselves, and they want to experience a relationship with their creator. But they don't want to hear that they're sinners, and they don't want to hear that they have to give up their sin. And there aren't, they aren't interested in trusting in Christ alone or surrendering their lives to him. And so really what they opt for is spiritual transformation. I should call it religious transformation. It's amazing to hear people say, well, I go to church because it makes me feel better. I want to go someplace where, where I'll feel good and where, and where I'll be encouraged and told that I'm okay. And what they're talking about is outward reformation. One of these false teachers that is on TV, one of the largest preachers in the largest churches of our land, is famous for saying, well, when asked what the success of his church was from, he said, well, I, I, I don't preach about sin. Good ex example of what I'm talking about. Because people are interested in out for outward reformation where they can just add a few religious things to their lives so they can feel better. But I want you to get the gist of what Peter is saying here. Outer reformation without inner transformation leads only to spiritual bondage. That's not true freedom at all. It's not the gospel. So the purpose of life is not to find your freedom, but to find your master. And if you give yourselves to searching for freedom you're going to end up instead in bondage and in slavery and in corruption. False teachers promise freedom, but their followers end up in worse bondage, is what Peter is saying. Well, so far, Peter's been talking about the character of these false teachers primarily, but now he's going to transition and he's going to help us to understand their judgment, the certainty of their judgment. And actually, throughout the whole second chapter, Peter's hinted at, he's mentioned their coming judgment several times. But in these last three verses particularly, Peter focuses on the certainty of their judgment. Let's listen to what he says beginning at verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to mire to wallow in the mire. These false teachers, Peter's talking about here are not merely confused Christians. They're not doubting Thomases. They're not backslidden believers. They are fakes. They're counterfeits. They preached another gospel. They appeared to be genuine for a time, but eventually their words and their deeds gave them away as fakes. 
Peter says they had a knowledge of the Lord. However, the, the, their fruit made it obvious that they're not genuinely saved. In other words, they had a head knowledge, but they did not have a heart knowledge. It never changed their hearts. And Peter compares their last state here to a couple of pets, to a dog returning to its vomit, a quote from the Proverbs, and to a pig returning to its mire. Not speaking very kindly about little doggies and piggies, is he? Okay, so my apologies if you have a pet of one of these. All right. Two animals that can be pets in our culture, but understand in that culture they absolutely were not pets. 2,000 years ago, no one had a pet dog or a pet pig. Back then, dogs were scavenger animals that ran around town and ate garbage. And pigs, of course, were considered unkosher. You never wanted to be called a dog or a pig. Here's the point. At the end of the day, that thing, that pet, is still an animal, and it's going to demonstrate its true nature. Let me give you a rather extreme example to make the point. So tigers and lions are sometimes trained and put in circuses, right? And they're trained to respond to human commands or the crack of a whip, things like that. But their trainers know that by nature they're still animals and they're careful to not turn their backs on them, typically. Well, in 2003, at the Mirage Hotel in Las Vegas, in the Siegfried and Roy show, a 600-pound white tiger attacked Roy Horn and threw him around the stage like a rag doll and nearly killed him. Trainers are aware that that's always a possibility because that's the nature of the animal. And here Peter is saying that these people, these false teachers, will do what their unregenerate, their unredeemed natures must do. You can dress up a pig with a bow tie or a person with a bow tie, but there's no, if there's no change in their heart, they're going to live out their sinful human nature. If they're not given a new nature through faith in Christ, they're going to live like the old nature. Their true nature will kick in eventually and come out. And Peter also goes on to say that last state is worse than the first. What does that mean? Well, I think what he's saying is that they're going to be judged even more strongly. They're going to be held to a higher standard in the judgment. Remember Jesus said in the parable of Luke 12 that The more knowledge you have, the greater your accountability. In in the judgment, you will be held to greater accountability by God. So here's what I think Peter is saying. I believe he's describing these false teachers, these fake Christians who appeared for a season to be true believers, but they didn't grow and they didn't bear good fruit. And eventually, since their basic nature was never changed, it all came out. They were never truly saved at all. Yes, they were in the church. They fellowshiped with the Christians. They heard the gospel. But they were never truly saved. And in the end, since they heard the truth, but then led many people astray, they're going to suffer judgment accordingly. All right, let's talk about some application as we wrap up. Three next steps I want you to consider with me today. All right? Number one, I will be... Alert for the danger of false teachers. I'll be on guard for the danger of false teachers around me. As you read the New Testament, you notice that there's warning after warning after warning about false teachers and the things they teach. 
Most of the New Testament epistles include these kind of warnings because the authors of Scripture understood there's so many people out there who want to lead us down a dangerous path. Let me give you three simple tests to help recognize them because you're going to hear things and you're going to wonder. So three tests you can apply. First is the test of character, the character of a person. These, you're wondering if a person is a fake, a false teacher, look at their character. Is there the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Galatians 5 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Look at the character of a person, first of all. Second is the test of creed, creed or doctrine. What are they teaching about Jesus, for example? Does it line up with Scripture? Do they deny the deity of Christ or do they believe the biblical teachings about the deity of Jesus Christ? Many people who knock on our doors and promote false religions deny the deity of Jesus Christ, for example. What are they saying about God himself? Are they abandoning the narrow way? Or are they teaching what Jesus taught, that no one can come to the Father except through me, except through Jesus? Are they messing with the historic truths of the Christian faith? That's a second test. And a third and final test is converts. Look at the people they're influencing. Look at, at the effect on the, the people who are following them. Is there joy among them? Is there a spiritual vibrancy among them? Is there holiness? Is there a, an intimate and close walk with Jesus? Or have they gotten too harsh and legalistic? Or on the other hand, have they gotten too loose and self-centered? As you hear people say things, and as you look at people and wonder if they're teaching the truth, here are three little tests. The test of character, the test of creed, and the test of their converts. D.L. Moody was talking to a friend one day when this guy walked up to them, this man walked up to them, and uh, Moody said to the guy he was talking to, that man was in the army. And, and the friend he was talking to said, well, that guy's a friend of mine, and you're absolutely right. He was in the army, but how did you know? And Moody said, well, I could tell by the way he walked. Listen, you can tell by the way people walk, how they live their life. And people can tell by the way you and I walk as well. I'm so thankful to shepherd a flock who loves the Lord and loves walking in his word and sitting here with Bibles open and, and uh, is packed with people who love the word of God. And I would add this today. Who you hang out with makes a big difference as well. Who you hang out with impacts your life powerfully. So be careful who you walk with as well. Okay, the secret of keeping you going strong and staying on the right path is to have the right company of people walking around you. It's one reason why so many clubs get started. You know, there's reading clubs and exercise clubs and, and uh, hiking clubs and sporting clubs and car clubs and motorcycle clubs, and they, they have... They have rallies and, and chat rooms and magazines and meetings, and it's because they know this truth. If you want to succeed at anything, if you want to stay strong and growing in anything, you need to surround yourselves with other people who have the same interest and passion that you do. It's one of the reasons, actually, we come to church. 
It's one of the reasons that we also break into small groups as a church family, because we learn from others and we encourage each other in a small group context. We help each other understand the Bible and apply it to our lives. And by the way, we're beginning our fall, fall sermon series in our small group season in September. So just in a few weeks, we're beginning a brand new sermon series called The God Questions. I'm super excited about it. You're going to be hearing much more about it. But August is our month to line up small group leaders and assistant leaders. And I bring that up because we're always looking this time of year for new leaders and assistant leaders. If you're interested in learning more about that and what's involved in that, please, on your communication card today, just write SG for small group, SG leader, question mark. And Reg or one of our leaders will get in touch with you and explain what's involved, all right? But we grow the most when we're helping others and when we're helping lead. It's important to have people around you, to have people who inspire you spiritually. So don't just be alert for false teachers. Be careful who you walk with and walk with those who will inspire you to grow strong. That's next step number one. Next step two is I will develop my discernment skills. My discernment. As we consider Peter's description of false teachers, listen, don't expect every one of these characteristics to describe every false teacher. Rather, Peter is giving characteristics to sort of cover the broad range of false teachers that are out there. And therefore, it's important for us to develop discernment. Discernment is a good word. That word discern means to distinguish the false from the true, truth and error. We need to be alert for false teachers, and we need to develop discernment. I like what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul said this. He said, Do not scoff at prophecies, but test everything that is said. Hold on to what is good. We're commanded to test everything we hear and only to embrace that which is good, that which lines up with Scripture. Someone said, a lie can travel halfway around the world before truth can get its boots on. I like that. So true. How fast air travels. So we need to develop discernment skills. We need to become experts in God's Word. That's where we can have discernment from. So devote yourself to God's Word, to studying the Bible, to be part of a Bible study or a small group. Get into God's Word yourself as well and learn to recognize truth and error. On the other hand, I want to add a little balance to that. Be careful not to become sort of a gospel Gestapo. All right? Don't be the person who's looking for air under every rock and trying to expose everything that you see that's false. Don't critique everyone and make it your mission to bring everybody down around you, okay? It's very easy with that mentality to sort of go overboard at times in discernment. I'm simply challenging you. You do need to be discerning. You do need to test everything but you need to hold that in balance. And that's just for some people. Most of you probably don't need to worry about that. All right? Next step, number three. I will test myself and make sure I am truly saved. One question this passage we just read raises is, can a believer lose their salvation? Some of these descriptive words about the false teachers makes it sound like they were believers and then they lost it. 
The simple answer is no, a believer cannot lose their salvation. And I say that because Jesus said in John 6 that he will not lose any of those that the Father has given to him. And in John 10, Jesus said, no one can snatch his sheep out of his hand. So the question is not, can a believer lose their salvation? The question we should be asking is, what does it mean to be a true believer? Or what is true saving faith? What does that look like? And in a nutshell, I'd say this. When God saves you, he changes your heart. He gives you a new heart, a new spirit, a new nature so that your desires are changed and you want to read his word and you want to please him and obey him. And you get a new heart like that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and accept his forgiveness by faith. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul wrote this. He said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. That's simply what I'm saying. Listen, you may be a very spiritual person, but you might still not be right with God if you haven't come to God on his own terms. The question really is not, are you spiritual? The question is, according to Jesus, are you born again? It was Jesus who said in John 3, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. He cannot see the kingdom of God. So, would Jesus say you are truly saved, is really the question. As many as received him, to those he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe, believe in his name. Uh, that's what it means to be truly saved. Let's bow together in prayer. Would you bow with me, please? Father, we do pray with a spirit and a heart that is behind the words that we've read today, that you would help us to be alert for the danger of false teaching. We pray, Father, you'd give us discernment, that we would know your word so well that we can recognize error. Help us to be discerning and biblical in our thinking. Help us so that we can grow and not go astray as we're warned here. Would you help us, please, we ask today. And Lord, would you please place around us those inspiring ones that will help us grow further and deeper and stronger in you. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.